is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And Paul, me not being interrupted right there, let you know that uh, unfortunately Stuart could not join us tonight. Ah, uh, that was, it's wonderful to hear you uninterrupted, Dr. Wada. <laughs> we will still get a good pun in though. Yeah, yeah, I was I was on fire with the puns tonight. Um, thank you, <laughs> Stuart, no for puns. texting those in to me. Uh, and as you can hear, uh, Dr. Molly Hoibline is returning yet again on the show. Molly, thanks for being with us. Glad to be back. And we we talked for a long time with our guest and got a lot of great information. So I'll just let you kind of set up the show and, and get to reading her. Oh, no, wait. I'm, I'm forgetting my own show. Paul, oh. why don't you tell people what we do on this show? <laughs> sure. Happy to, Matt. We are the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also talk to the guest up front um, and just get to know each other a little bit and talk about how we sort of uh, decompress and de-stress and practice work-life integration. So if you're less interested in that part, feel free to skip ahead using the timestamp seen in these show notes. Thank you, Paul. And now, Molly, if you if you could set up the show and tell them about our wonderful guest. Sure. So we had an awesome guest tonight, uh, Dr. Carlin Center. She is an associate professor of medicine and orthopedics at UCSF. Her focus is helping patients of all ages stay active, reduce injury risk, and achieve peak performance. She has particular clinical interest in exercise counseling and exercise prescription, as well as treating sports concussions and stress fractures. She is the co-director of the UCSF Sports Concussion Program. Dr. Center's research focuses on enhancing musculoskeletal education for primary care clinicians, which she shined tonight. She designs educational interventions to improve knowledge of the musculoskeletal system and diagnostic skills among medical students, residents, and practicing clinicians. She also co-chairs two annual continuing education courses in sports medicine. Dr. Centaur earned her medical degree at the David Geffen School of Medicine in UCLA. She then completed a residency in primary internal medicine at the University of Washington Medical Center, followed by a fellowship in primary care sports medicine at UCLA. She belongs to the American College of Physicians, American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, American College of Sports Medicine, and Society of General Internal Medicine. She has received numerous awards for teaching and service. And tonight on the show, she teaches us all about how to perform a high-yield shoulder exam and sort of very efficiently narrow it down. It's really helpful, so I can't wait for everyone to hear it. So, Carlin, the first question I'm going to ask you is, can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself to the audience so they can kind of get to know who you are? And it can be outside of just as a physician. Give them a little bit of hobbies, interests, things like that as well. Um, yeah, I'm a pr uh, primary care sports medicine physician, and I'm a recreational runner, and I'm a really big Oakland A's fan. <laughs> okay. My my earliest member memory of the Oakland A's is like that. Uh, wasn't there an earthquake like during the World Series or the playoffs? And that was, mm -hmm. I think, part of the bridge collapsed. And I just have like I was like scarred for life from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really big in Bay Area history. It was 1989. The A's were playing the Giants. Yeah, the A's did win in the end, <laughs> but it was they interrupted. 
Yeah, I was interrupted by a 10-day break because of the earthquake. Yeah. As a seven-year-old, I was pretty into Jose Canseco (laughs) and Mark McGuire. I'm sure the audience is big fans of the 1980s Oakland days as well. (laughs) But the the Bash Brothers, I had a picture on my door of Mark McGuire and uh, Jose Canseco with bats over the shoulders. And then... uh, yeah, I was just traumatized by that earthquake. And I was like, Mom, I'm never going to California. There's earthquakes there. <laughs> I had a, uh, I also had a Bash Brothers poster and a life-size Jose Canseco poster. Awesome. Nice. Yes. Yeah, he's, uh, he, he didn't age that well. Whereas like, he's no longer as cool in my eyes. Some of his behavior has been questionable since that time. You know, I think that depends on, yes, your read of sports and morality. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's a a good discussion. Yeah. All right. But uh, I'll I'll let my co-host ask you some questions. Yeah, thank you. Since I had nothing to contribute to the the sports conversation, um, let's let's go with my usual. Uh, can you give me a book recommendation? Doesn't necessarily have to be medical, but a book that you feel um, maybe physicians would benefit from reading. Um, Yeah, yeah. So one I read recently is. called God's Hotel. I don't know if any of you have read that book. It's written by Victoria Sweet about the history of Laguna Honda, which is an old almshouse in San Francisco. And it's a great um, narrative about her life and um, medical history and somewhat about the architecture of the place and then also about the doctoring that she did there in with with the luxury of a lot of time so she talks my favorite part of the book is her talking about slow medicine and sitting at the bedside and she describes uh taking a patient you know who was discharged from the hospital who's going to stay there at laguna honda and describes meeting them and not reviewing their chart but rather meeting the patient first and actually doing a physical exam first before reading the chart and and trying to glean everything she can from that patient's physical exam to um, tell her what's going on with that person, which I think is a really, really amazing skill. That was a great book. I read it a couple of years ago, and it really makes you sort of think about how different medication, medicine in the outpatient setting is from sort of what historical, really long-term longitudinal relationships were and giving people time to heal themselves. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Even just like the clinical reasoning of maybe she was like trying to figure out like could she pick up things that they had based on the exam and then go back and look at the chart like did they have you know were they a cirrhotic etc that's that's pretty cool yeah it's very cool it's still kind of my most favorite thing to do i guess probably this is true of everyone in primary care but that first visit where you're just starting to unpack everything and just kind of like there's nothing that excites me more than the empty chart where I can or <laughs> insert generic EHR name here, but to go and find they've not had prior visits and be fully responsible for listing history and doing the first physical exam that will be documented. Like there's, I, I find that probably more gratifying than almost anything else other than the longitudinality that comes after it. So that sounds fantastic. Yeah. The other thing I really like about it is, well, I'm a big fan of all things physical exam. That's sort of one of the reasons I really love sports medicine is there's no substitute for the physical exam, you can get an MRI, but it's not going to really help in many cases. Right. Uh, and uh, and she talks about that. You know, she talks about the economy, you know, healthcare economy and physical exam. And Lots of good pointers from you today on the physical exam. So I want to ask, what's something in the last week or so that really brought you joy? So I like 
uh, as I said, I like to run and, uh, and I try to work it in when I can. I had a great run last uh, Friday morning early. It was dark out and my neighborhood is safe enough that I can run by myself in the dark in the morning. Uh, I wear this awesome like fluorescent green penny. So I think that makes it safer so I don't get hit. But there really aren't that many cars out. And anyways, it was just um, a quiet, relatively warm morning in the neighborhood. I live in a part of San Francisco that can get very um, moist and foggy. Uh, but this was not one of those mornings. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a beautiful morning, a quiet run. Uh, I had a lot on my mind. I had a very busy clinic the day before. And it gave me a chance to work through some things that I was working on from that. So um, it was just a, a really nice time. Let's ask you about some advice that you have that you've either received as a learner or as a teacher. Yeah. So one piece of advice that I come back to, I'll tell you the story and then I'll tell you the advice. So uh, this advice came to me when I was an intern and uh, it was as many intern stories are. It was the middle of the night on call and I was in the emergency room taking care of a patient and I needed to call urology for a consult. So I rang up urology and I said, you know, hi, it's Carlin Center calling from medicine and uh, I'm sorry to bother you. I have this question and went on with my question and uh, hung up the phone. And then from behind me, I hear you, you shouldn't apologize. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, you know, <laughs> what do you, what do you mean? And so a senior resident said to me, you know, um, you don't need to apologize for calling a consult or asking a question. That person's on call. That's their job. And, you know, you have a question and you need help taking care of this patient. It's never wrong and you don't need to apologize for that. And furthermore, they'll be much more interested if you lead with, I need your help. Mm. <laughs> um, and so that stayed with me. That stayed with me for a couple of reasons. One is that um, it's very relevant. I think it just kind of stays with you and not only patient care, but sort of in life. And uh, two, I ended up uh, marrying the person who gave me the advice. <laughs> 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 that was um, uh, one of the one of the first meetings uh, between me and my husband in that in the emergency room. And so it, that piece of advice has stayed with me for two reasons. <laughs> I'm surprised you so publicly tell tell people that he gave you good good advice. Usually, <laughs> I would never admit that about my wife. Uh, yeah. All right. Any Didn't further? you have your wife as a pick of the week one time? I feel like you you say good. Yeah, things I about did. Her. Yeah, <laughs> I'm joking. I I would pray. I will praise my wife for many things. Matt's wife was my second favorite pick of the week from him. First, famously being a five dollar jump rope from Amazon. I have a good one for you tonight, Paul. So, so since we're on the topic of picks of the week, I recently bought. These things called the TRX straps, which is because I wanted to turn my office into a gym and my office is about eight by eight feet or something like that. Uh, sometimes with an office mate, I definitely can't can't use them if, if my office mates in there. But uh, it's it's this thing that you like throw over the door and then it gives you these like two handles so you can do like modifications of all different like upper body, lower body and core exercises. And uh, it's 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 like ninety nine bucks or something like that. And it's uh it's, I don't have a gym in my office and I don't have a gym in our hospital. So it's my way of squeezing in like a 15, 20 minute workout. So that's for you, Paul. I, I couldn't wait to give this pick of the week. <laughs> it's a huge price jump. I'm not, I'm not making the money. I'd like a $5 jump rope better. 
Anybody else want to have a pick of the week? Paul? <laughs> well, sure, sure, if you're going to ask. I, um, I, I think we talked about this maybe not on the show, but I'm going to recommend a book that I had occasion to reread um, over the past. It feels like seven years at this point because the book is family Bible-sized, but it's excellent. It's the 1999 novel uh, Cryptonomicon by the author Neil Stevenson. And it's, it's this interesting book that deals with two different timelines, uh, one set during World War II around a group of codebreakers and their covert operations, and one set in mostly present day, so set in the, the late 1990, um, with characters who are actually direct descendants of the characters in the World War II storyline. And it, it's too much to get into all of it because it's a gigantic book, but it's beautifully written, and it's kind of about how the flow of information shapes history and how we interact with people and sort of even when that flow of information is a cult to us, how it sort of shapes the world around us. So it's it's a really fascinating, funny, beautifully written book that has a lot of um, historical nuance. So if you have, you know, three years to waste, um, I would recommend the book Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. It took me so long to read that book. <laughs> I like, yeah, it took me it took me a while to get into it and to figure out what was going on, and then just to like process the whole like it's almost a thousand pages, I think. But it is, I agree, very, it's very good. It's a, It's one of his more popular books. He's a great author, too. Uh, do you want me to get started with, with our case? I'm... Yeah, let's let's go to the case. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. Well, we're really excited to do this topic, Carlin, because we've had, um, you know, a really great prior recording on the knee exam and have had so many questions about shoulder pain, and it's definitely something we deal with all the time in primary care, so... Thanks so much for coming on. Um, so our case today, we're going to start with Mrs. S is a 52-year-old overweight woman who complains of about three months of shoulder pain. Um, she doesn't remember any particular trauma, and it seems to be getting worse over time. So now she's noticed she's limited with act uh, activities like lifting her arm over her head. So if we could start with kind of how you address this in the office, um, and then maybe we could go on to talk about um, sort of other common shoulder conditions that we see in the adult primary care setting. So um, since we kind of have limited time, we'll stay away from some of the more acute uh, injury sort of issues, but more of the subacute chronic um, sort of older adult approaches. Um, so in this patient with about three months of non-traumatic shoulder pain, how do you start to ask about the history? Are there certain questions that you feel like are most helpful in starting to narrow down the differential? Yeah. So um, first of all, it's great to be here. And I'm so excited to talk about shoulder. Shoulder problems are, I think, the second most common musculoskeletal reason patients go to primary care clinics in our country and rotator cuff disease being the primary diagnosis in those patients. So I think for internists, particularly those who practice now patient setting, it's really high yield to understand the basics of shoulder pain management and evalu evaluation and management. So some keys on history, I think one with shoulder, you can really craft your differential based on age. So a 52 year old person, a middle-aged person will have different problems than an elderly person in the, and then a younger person uh, with cup disease in particular, cup disease, the severity increases as you get older. So a younger person under 40 would most likely if they have cuff problems, rotator cuff problems would have tendonitis. But as you get to be 40 and older, the risk of tearing your rotator cuff, even in the atraumatic setting, goes up. And so the older the patient, the more you want to worry about a rotator cuff tendon tear. In this setting, without any trauma, of course, you don't worry as much about a tear, but you know you can't have wear and tear that tears a tendon. Uh, with her getting 
I think the other the other criteria I think about as far as history factors, um, I think about a past history of trauma. So anyone who's had a shoulder dislocation, whether if recent and they're over 40, they have a very, very high risk of having torn a rotator cuff tendon. If distant history of shoulder dislocation, of course, you worry about shoulder arthritis. And then thinking about this person who's middle-aged and, again, with atraumatic shoulder pain that's getting worse with time, um, you want to think about common causes. Other common causes for shoulder pain in a middle-aged person would be frozen shoulder. And so in that case, thinking about the trajectory of pain, which is one, frozen shoulder is one where it starts uh, without um uh, it starts with lots of pain and then gets stiff. And so you can try to elucidate that history in in a patient like this. I was going to say, is there anything about the pain? Like, do you think more about pain that bothers someone at night or certain activities or that doesn't matter so much? You know, most shoulder pain, most shoulder pain that is impingement syndrome or frozen shoulder, most pain about the shoulder joint will wake a, pa- a person up from sleep. And I do ask that. I ask that, though, not so much to help with my differential. I use that to help me understand the urgency of the situation, um, which is to say that I think that if someone's not sleeping well, they're not doing well. And so I want to really fix that problem ASAP if they're waking up. And and that, I mean, as we get to talk about treatment, if someone's waking up from shoulder pain, then I start to think more about, you know, can I get this person an injection? And then secondarily about the pain, I'm interested in the location of pain. And typically, you know, I'll use, you know, your typical one finger approach. So where does it hurt? And really, um, most shoulder problems, people will feel like it radiates or they'll feel like the primary pain is in the deltoid because most impingement syndrome and rotator cuff disease manifests as pain laterally. So deep to the deltoid. Whereas AC joint pain will be on the top of the shoulder and uh, posterior shoulder pain, you should really start thinking about cervical spine etiologies. So anything around the rhomboids, the back of the neck or the scapula, uh, start to think about the neck. So I want to go back for a second. You said sort of an older patient, maybe a patient with a past history of trauma, you think more arthritis. When, when you say arthritis, are you referring to glenohumeral or acromioclavicular or which or both? I mean, which which arthritis are, are we talking about when we talk about older patients with shoulder arthritis? Yeah, thanks for the clarification. Glenohumeral joint arthritis in that case. Okay. I definitely, as we get into this, I'd like if you could point out ways to kind of separate out the neck from the shoulder. I definitely have seen a couple cases in the past few years where I just, the, the complaint with shoulder pain but I just wasn't sure if it was coming from the C-spine or not. And, you know, sometimes it's going down the arms as well, but that that's something that can trip me up. So I don't know if if the neck exam is a routine part of what you do for all patients with shoulder pain or if it's just certain cases. Um, it's uh, At this point, it's certain cases, but in the beginning, it was routine. And I would say the history factors really guide me. So if I have a patient, like I said, with presenting – with posterior shoulder pain, I will do a neck exam and as well as a scapular exam, looking for rarer things like a wing scapula. Um, the other history things, so one kind of neat factoid is shoulder pain uh, gets worse when you reach overhead. 
I think we all realize that, you know, people say, ah, you know, when I'm cooking or reaching in the cabinet, in the kitchen, it'll hurt. Um, a cervical radiculopathy will get better when you put your hand above your head. And people will sometimes describe actually putting their hand on top of their head to, to provide relief. And so that's a real tip off that this is a cervical problem. That's fantastic. I yeah, had I think someone today at cash lock with that exactly. No problem. way. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, I think it's because it's relieving tension, right? Like you walk around and your arms dangling and it pulls tension on the nerve and then you put it at the top of your head and it relieves that tension. So, um, so you can look out for that. And then also, of course, you know, anything, any pain radiating past the elbow would be not the shoulder. But it's just so I'm understanding in terms of the the history portion, provocative things, things like reaching over my head or when I brush my hair, like that doesn't seem particularly localizing for any specific pathology to you, really, other than maybe less likely to be cervical radiculopathy. Yeah, my exactly. Understanding. Okay. Anything else on the history before we start to move into the exam? And I guess just from a broader overview, do you have any ways of breaking shoulder pain into like, do you, do you have buckets that you put it into? Uh, Molly had mentioned, or, or you had mentioned a couple like frozen shoulder and arthritis, but how, how do you split it up? Yeah, my approach is, uh, I mean, once you've taken a history similar to what we've just discussed, I mean, I think your, your sort of basic pain history, um, then it's really all about the physical exam and, the way I approach that in shoulder, I think in musculoskeletal problems in general, it's good to have a framework. And the framework I like to use is called HIPROT, which stands for history, inspection, palpation, range of motion, other tests. So HIPROT, which can be applied <laughs> to anything. But um, with shoulder, so you do history, then you inspect, you know, and you want to inspection you're looking for, you know, some history of a clavicle fracture, maybe a separated AC joint. Again, with posterior pain, looking for a wing scapula. But in most cases, I think in our clinics, you won't see a whole lot. You might see in someone with a really bad rotator cuff tear, you might see some, um, if you look at their back below the scapular spine, you might see on the affected side that it's kind of scalloped out. And that would be a sign of a massive chronic rotator cuff tear. But in general, I'd say most patients, you know, inspection on the shoulder is not going to give you that much. Um, Palpation we can talk about, but the key when you're thinking about buckets and triage is really range of motion. And so in the atraumatic setting uh, with shoulder pain, you can think about active range of motion and having your patient reach forward, uh, reach out to the side in abduction. And then my favorite one, I would say, this is like, a thing I nerd out about, which is basically like if I had, you know, like, let's say I had to see a hundred patients in a half day and they all had shoulder pain and I could only do one physical exam maneuver, what would it be? Um, it would be active external rotation. So if you have your patient um, seated or standing, holding their arms to their side with their elbows bent, bent to 90 degrees, and then you ask them to turn their arms their hands out to the side. So sort of like they're, you know, opening a book or sort of like they're, they're flapping their hands out, but keeping their elbows at their side, that's shoulder external rotation. And, um, and in some cases that'll be limited. And that's a very good way to tell how, how is somebody's glenohumeral joint range of motion. So if you have someone where their external rotation is limited, 
or their abduction or forward flexion, you want to take them through passive range of motion and test that. And if both their active and passive range of motion is decreased, then you really only have two diagnoses, again, in the clinic setting that you'd be worried about. One would be glenohumeral joint arthritis, and the other would be frozen shoulder. And, you know, you can distinguish those things easily with a radiograph, of course, by history, but I always get an x-ray in those cases really to rule out crazy things like a tumor or something crazy that would also inhibit motion of the glenohumeral joint. Um, so again, when you have a patient with limited active, limited passive range of motion in the clinic setting, you're really thinking, all right, this patient either has a frozen shoulder or they have um, glenohumeral joint arthritis. And then that's sort of an easy pathway. You know, at that point, I don't actually tend to go into any other testing because it doesn't, in the case of both glenohumeral joint arthritis and frozen shoulder, it doesn't actually matter treatment-wise how the rotator cuff is doing. So in frozen shoulder, if you have a rotator cuff tear, the rotator cuff tendon tear should not be operated on until the frozen shoulder is better. And so, you know, you can really focus in on those diagnoses and worry about the rotator cuff another time. And you said that you can differentiate the two between the x-ray with frozen shoulder, that's you get hydroxyapatite deposition. Is that or or how do you differentiate from the X-ray? Yeah, so frozen shoulder actually would tend to have a normal X-ray, um, whereas glenohumeral joint arthritis would have uh, your typical X-ray findings of osteoarthritis. So joint space narrowing, osteophytes, subchondral cysts, and subchondral sclerosis. Okay, that seems simple enough. So. <laughs> So what's the next? So that's this was for the act. That's if active and passive range of motion are both decreased. So that's right. those two. Okay. Yeah. Um, the tricky, you know. So there's what. Uh, moving on past that, I would say um, one sort of asterisk around that is it's not always that easy, and I think all of us who see shoulder pain patients know that there are cases where. You just can't quite tell. You can't tell if the person is passive range of motion is limited because of pain or because it's truly limited. And I've definitely had patients where I took them through, you know, my very best shoulder physical exam. And despite my best efforts of coaching them through the passive range of motion and trying to distract and relax, you know, I get the sense, well, it's limited. So they probably have frozen shoulder. And then I have them get a steroid injection and they come back and all of a sudden their shoulder range of motion is completely normal. And in that case, that means it was not a frozen shoulder because in frozen shoulder, it actually takes a year or two for the range of motion to normalize. The steroid injection helps the pain, but it does not normalize the range of motion. So in that case, I know that I got it wrong and it was actually impingement syndrome and the cortisone did it. It helped their pain, and now they can fully range. So the hard thing about, um, I would say, this this sort of algorithm works really well a lot of the time, but but there are cases that we all run into where the person's passive range of motion is going to be limited from pain, and um, you, know, you might mistake impingement syndrome and frozen shoulder. And so in a patient that has a reduced range of motion, and you get the x-ray, and it's normal, and you decide it probably is frozen shoulder, and they're kind of past that painful stage, 
is there any any benefit to getting a steroid shot or if if the steroid shot is really just to help with pain it's mostly physical therapy in time yeah so frozen shoulder you know I'll just say a little bit about it it typically it's it's so common but we know relatively little about it it's it's really fascinating frozen shoulder affects 20% of diabetics and i see it um, all the time and it's it can be misdiagnosed because it's so painful and, um, and I would say uh, that what you want to look for in a case of frozen shoulder is a typical history, like I said, of someone who kind of wakes up and they have terrible shoulder pain. Now, it's not so painful that they go to the emergency room. There is one shoulder diagnosis in the clinic setting where you'll have patients who, who, sh- who go to the emergency room, and that's, that's calcific tendonitis. Um, Calcific tendonitis has an extremely acute onset. People will wake up and it will be so painful they actually go to the hospital. And then it resolves very quickly and effectively with NSAIDs uh, or with a cortisone shot. Frozen shoulder, on the other hand, starts with a little bit slower ramp up of pain and sort of goes through these three stages. So the first stage, each of which lasts somewhere like six to nine months. First stage is the freezing stage. So you're very painful. And that's when patients typically come in. Um, They will be losing range of motion, but the range of motion really doesn't get maximally reduced till the second stage, which we call the frozen stage. And in the frozen stage, you have less pain, but you're really, really frozen. And that also lasts somewhere like six to nine months. And then the last stage is the thawing phase. And that also lasts like six to nine months. And by that time, the shoulder is like back to normal. And it's, a, I think, a really fascinating problem that we understand relatively little about. As far as treatment, if the person doesn't have a lot of pain, then um, they don't. Yeah, I mean, really, the, the steroid injection is up to the patient. Uh, it's, it's meant to be helpful with pain and has not been shown to expedite recovery. And data around rehab is um, limited, and I would say um, not super compelling that it makes a difference. You'll hear different things from different people around that, but um, there's you know no no right answer as far as how to treat frozen shoulder. I sort of let the patient be the guide if they are um, if they've had good experiences with physical therapy in the past, then it could be a good idea. On the other hand, if they are uh, in a rural area or it's a real hardship to get to physical therapy or they're just too busy, then they can be reassured to do some range of motion at home and that this will resolve with time. Is that a hard sell that it takes two years to recover and <laughs> there's nothing we can do? <laughs> so with my frozen shoulder patients, I sort of say to them, Um, And some can, I mean, all joking aside, I have had some patients get really, get pretty depressed. I mean, especially if it's your dominant arm and, uh, you know, I've had a patient, I had a kayaker who couldn't do her sport and she was, um, it was very hard for her. Um, But I will joke with them and I'll say, well, you know, the good news, um, or I'll say the bad news is this takes, you know, it could take two to three years to get better. But the good news is it doesn't tend to happen to the same shoulder ever again, (laughs) 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 which is true. I mean, it's very unusual to see it twice in the same shoulder. 
Any other thoughts on um, adhesive capsulitis before we move on and maybe just talk a little bit about if, so sort of on that same bucket, if there is a uh, change in range of motion and you think it's arthritis based on your exam and the x-ray, do you have kind of first steps that a primary care doc should do in that case and how you counsel patients around that? Yeah. So if the patient has limited passive and active range of motion and uh, the x-ray indicates glenohumeral joint arthritis, this would tend to be an older patient. So frozen shoulder is typically, uh, it's women more than men, five times as many women as men. And it's typically women age 40 to 60, and it's more common in diabetics. So you can watch out for those things history-wise. With glenohumeral joint arthritis, um, osteoarthritis, uh, this would typically be an older cohort of people getting more into like 80s, 90s. Um, And x-ray would show that uh, you can have, you know, uh, you can have rheumatoid arthritis present in the shoulder. So that's the other reason in frozen shoulder to get an x-ray is to make sure it's not inflammatory arthropathy. Um, But back to glenohumeral joint osteoarthritis, the treatment for those patients depends on their functional status. It's not dissimilar to how you care for knee osteoarthritis, which is that you can offer steroid injections Um, I tend to these days uh, have those done under ultrasound guidance into the glenohumeral joint. Same with frozen shoulder. There is some evidence with frozen shoulder that an ultrasound guided steroid injection into the glenohumeral joint is more effective than an ultrasound guided steroid injection into the subacromial space. And so in both cases, frozen shoulder and glenohumeral joint OA, I'll offer a steroid injection into the joint. And um, for glenohumeral joint OA, uh, I I will often um, also recommend physical therapy to work on regaining what range of motion is possible and then strengthening around the joint. And then last case, the glenohumeral joint can be replaced. And that's an option for patients if, um, if they have functional limitations that require that. Okay. Um, so moving on to um, cases where there is a change in range of motion. So if we kind of uh, go back to our case and change it up a little bit, and Mrs. S thinks back and actually she re- remembers that she did have a little bit of a slip kind of around the time the pain started and she reached out and grabbed on the railing and maybe stretched her her shoulder. Um, and then on exam, we, we see that she does have um, full range of motion, but it's painful. Um, how does that kind of change your thinking? So in that case, I'm so now we're talking again about a middle-aged woman who's had a you know a low intensity trauma, so a low velocity trauma. And so what what do I start thinking about? So I definitely, definitely start thinking about rotator cuff disease in this case in, in that case, just right off the bat. Again, because numbers-wise, if you guess rotator cuff pathology in your primary care patient, you're gonna be right like the vast majority of the time. It's a good place to start if you're not quite sure. Just figure it's probably the rotator cuff. So you'd want to elicit elicit from her where is her pain, and you would expect it to be deep to the deltoid. It would be worse with overhead activity. It would be worse um, at night and likely wake her from sleep. And then the physical exam. So this is where the shoulder physical exam gets you know more interesting. Some people really don't like this part of the shoulder exam because it involves a lot of names that don't really have anything to do with what you're doing. Um, but when you, when you think about this part of the exam, so the first thing is to remember anatomy and to think, okay. And then the second thing I think from a primary care perspective is to really think, you know, 
what's the mission here? The mission is to refer the patient with a full thickness rotator cuff tear to the surgeon and everyone else can go to physical therapy. And I'm very interested. I'll be interested if anyone has any comments about this, but my hypothesis is that it may not matter what you write on your PT referral, right? If you say shoulder pain, if you say partial thickness cuff tear, if I say biceps tendonitis, if I say labral tear, the physical therapist, if you work with a good physical therapist, they're going to figure that out. So they spend an hour with the patient on the first intake and a good sports oriented physical therapist can tell this is biceps, this is labrum, this is uh, rotator cuff tendonitis. So all that is to say, I think the job of the primary care clinician is to seek and destroy the rotator cuff tendon tears. So those need to go to the surgeon. Everything else can go to physical therapy. And so when I think about, again, back to like, if I only had two exam maneuvers, what would I do? Oh, we're up to two now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm expanding. <laughs> so, um, so in this part, you know, you're looking for maneuvers that are going to give you a high likelihood that this patient has a cuff tear full thickness cuff tear and a little bit on anatomy. So when we think about the rotator cuff, remembering that the rotator cuff is made up of four muscles, each of which is connected to the humerus by a tendon. And it's the tendon that tears over time or with trauma. And so starting from the front, if you picture at the shoulder, you start with subscapularis, which sits on the front of the shoulder blade and inserts onto the humerus. And the job of subscapularis is to internally rotate your humeral head. So that would be like if you reach behind um, your back and lift your hand off from your belt, that's your subscapularis in action. And then moving from front to back again, uh, at the top of the shoulder is supraspinatus. And so that muscle sits above the scapular spine um, on top of the back of the scapula and inserts onto the greater tuberosity of the humerus. And you can imagine that's the orientation of that muscle. So if that muscle shortens, it's going to abduct your humerus. So raising your arm out from the side of your body. And then below that, again, uh, now we're beneath the scapular spine is infraspinatus, infra below. And uh, it inserts onto the backside of the humerus. And so if that muscle shortens, it's going to externally rotate your humerus. And so you can envision the subscapularis and the infraspinatus are doing opposite things and they're positioned on opposite sides of your body. And then you can kind of forget about the third, the fourth one, Terry's minor, because nothing ever happens to Terry's minor. <laughs> <laughs> so just like, I don't even know why we talk about Terry's minor, but you don't have to think about it at all. So don't worry about it. And, and in truth, from a primary care perspective, it's really all about supraspinatus because the vast majority of tears start there. So then you, so, so knowing that you can start to think about, all right, my job in this visit is to make sure this patient does not have a big supraspinatus tear. And how am I going to do that? So there are a few maneuvers that are very helpful. One, I think we've all learned and we call it different things. One is empty can. So empty can test, you have uh, the patient bring their arms um, out from the side of their body into abduction, but a little bit in front of their body in plane with the muscle. And then they, and then as the examiner, you want to push down and they're the, you're asking the patient to uh, push up towards the ceiling, resisting your force. And the idea is if they're weak, you're worried about a full thickness 
tear. If they just have pain, you can call it tendonitis or a partial tear. So that's empty can. Some people call that the Job's test. When when you say in plane with the muscle, is that uh, like kind of directly straight out in front of you or is it slightly out like more than shoulder width apart? It is. So let's say that in plane with your body is like 180 degrees mm-hmm. and like straight ahead, let's call that um, 90 degrees or maybe we should do clock face. So let's call straight in front of your body um, 12 o'clock mm-hmm. and let's call out to the left like nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. You want to be at 10 o'clock. Okay. Got it. All right. So like we're talking 10 and t- 10 and two mm-hmm. uh, okay. with people kind of argue about whether thumb should be, you know, is it, is it empty can or full can? So is it thumbs down versus thumbs up? It, it really doesn't matter. That just has to do with what part of supraspinatus you're activating. Uh, so I wouldn't split too many hairs on that. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. Uh, so other rotator cuff maneuvers that are high yield, um, and we'll put this reference. There's a there's a wonderful wonderful JAMA, um, yeah, rational clinical exam on this. You guys have seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this and was one has, of the questions from Facebook. Somebody said, "Can you tell us kind of some of the sensitivity specificity of these of these tests?" Yeah, yeah. So that um, article really goes through those details and they've done a really nice job of distilling the highest yield rotator cuff maneuvers. And so interestingly, there's a few that um, I think I wasn't taught as even as a sports medicine fellow, but that are highlighted in that paper. And so these are the internal and external rotation lag tests. And I'll describe both. So we already talked about the function of the muscles. We talked about subscapularis, which is as we discussed, it internally rotates the humerus. And so you can imagine um, if you want to test the integrity of that, you want to see if this person can hold their hand and their shoulder in internal rotation. So you basically, you can do this on yourself as you're listening. You can take your arm and put it behind your back and then lift it off from like your belt or your waist and hold it there. And that's your you know active uh, subscapularis working. The lag test is basically the examiner moves the patient's hand into that position and then lets go and asks the patient to maintain that position. And if your patient falls out of the position, that means they have a positive internal rotation lag test. And it turns out that that has a very high positive predictive value for a full thickness rotator cuff tear. And then the opposite is true. So the external rotation lag tests, you ask your patient to, um, or you move your patient's arm into shoulder external rotation, which is the same position that I discussed with frozen shoulders. So again, the uh, arm is to the side and the elbow is bent to 90. And then you bring the forearm um, externally rotated as far as the patient can tolerate. And as the examiner, you would just hold the arm there and then you would let go and ask the patient to maintain that position. And if the patient's unable to maintain that position, that would be a positive external rotation lag test. And again, with a very high uh, likelihood of having a full thickness cuff tear. Are we talking specific muscles with each of those or is just any of the four? Well, we'll, we'll throw out the Terry's minor, as you told us. So <laughs> any of the three ones that we care about, is that any of them could be torn with, with either, either of those or are they specific to, to certain muscles? I don't think that they've been well studied 
to map to certain muscles. Okay. So I would think of it as cuff tendon, full thickness. I would think of it as full thickness tear. That's much easier. So I'm, I'm glad it's that way. <laughs> <laughs> and you can apply that. I think with all, none of the rotator cuff tests have been very well validated to map to a particular tendon. And furthermore, you know, we're not in the job of fixing those tendons. Like, you know, you're going to get an MRI for that part of the job. So I wouldn't, I don't think you need to worry at all about that part. I think just distinguishing, is it, is this a full thickness tear or not? I was going to say those leg tests are just up against, you know, sort of holding a position against gravity. It's not pushing with the examiner. It's not actually like a strength test in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we, um, we're really used to testing strength and you can, and actually I do. Um, but these lag tests are just against gravity. That sounds easier than what I've been trying to do. <laughs> yeah. The, the other one I wanted to highlight is, which is also featured and there's nice illustrations in that rational clinical exam paper is the, um, painful arc maneuver which I'm sure everyone does, but you do it maybe and don't realize the value that it could give you as you're doing it. So this goes back a little bit. We've talked a lot about full thickness tears, but, but even going back to, you know, you have your patient who has, let's say limited active, but intact passive range of motion. And you're sort of in this bucket of, well, this is probably cuff disease. Cause again, this, that would be the most common thing, but how, you know, what maneuvers support that hypothesis? So there are maneuvers which we just discussed, which are which will increase the likelihood of full thickness cuff tear. But there are also maneuvers that are really used to increase the likelihood. Just yes, this is cuff disease, so you're in the neighborhood. And these I would do before those ones we just discussed. But to say, okay, I'm in the neighborhood of cuff disease, and when I say cuff disease, just to be explicit, I'm talking about four things. That would be um, impingement, so bursitis impingement and bursitis. I use synonymously, though there's some debate about that. We can talk about that. So number one in cuff disease is impingement. Number two is tendonitis. Number three is partial thickness tear. And number four is full thickness tear. And so there are maneuvers that, um, I mean, just the patient walking into your office, they're most likely to have cuff disease, but then what exam maneuvers support that? So the painful arc is one, which essentially uh, what happens in the painful arc is the examiner passively abducts the arm and you're looking for the patient to have pain between 60 and 120 degrees of abduction because that's the area of um, uh, where the rotator cuff uh, starts to pinch and, and have pain. So again, painful arc gets you closer, increases the likelihood of cuff disease. And then you would sort of follow with those maneuvers looking for full thickness tear. Are there any other exam maneuvers you do regularly? Yeah, let's see. So for cuff disease, the other things I will do if the patient does not have a full thickness tear, um, I will do impingement testing. And so a little bit about impingement syndrome, which is common in our younger patients um, as their primary cause for shoulder pain. So a typical story would be I'm a 25-year-old um, weightlifter and... I just, you know, I just started insert fad exercise program here. Um, and now my TRX. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I just, I just bought my new TRX. <laughs> um, and, uh, and 
and my shoulder's killing me. And so in that person, that person probably has some cuff tendonitis and maybe some impingement syndrome. And um, they would have most likely intact active range of motion. And then you'd want to go down the cuff disease pathway and they would have a painful arc, but no weakness of their rotator cuff muscles. And so I would do a couple impingement tests to say, okay, do they have uh, impingement syndrome? The first is Hawkins. And so Hawkin, it's Hawk, like the bird. And I think of it, that's how I remember uh, what it is. Cause it's like, you're flapping the patient's wing. <laughs> and so you essentially bring the shoulder into 90 degrees of forward flexion. Uh, and then you bend the elbow to 90 degrees and internally rotate as, you know, so I do it sort of gently so that my patient doesn't like cry or fall off the table. Uh, and it's meant to bring out pain. So you're looking for pain that should be deep to the deltoid. So that's Hawkins. And the second, so if that's negative, then I'll go on and do a second impingement in maneuver, which is nears. And I remember nears because it's near by the ear. And so you're bringing the arm up into, it's supposed to be rapid, passive forward flexion. And the forearm is supposed to be pronated. Uh, so the palm should be down, the thumb should be facing down. And the examiner passively brings the arm and the shoulder up into forward flexion. Again, looking for pain here. And positive tests here, again, this is for impingement or bursitis is what that would indicate. Correct. So I feel like the maneuvers that every resident remembers is <laughs> is everyone remembers Job's for some reason, uh, maybe because they're used to emptying out beers. Um, and then... I think the arm drop test, I guess, is the other one I wanted to ask you about. So I'm sorry, I probably should have asked this a little bit earlier. But in terms of assessing for a full thickness tear, is that another test that you use fairly commonly? Yeah, um, I, except I call it the, the drop arm, but oh, arm sure. drop, drop arm, either way. Um, same idea, I think, is that uh, essentially, and you get this when you are doing range of motion with your patient. So the idea being that um, as you're having the patient abduct, if they cannot control their return from abduction, if the arm just drops, that would really raise concern about rotator cuff disease. I actually think though it's not, I, I if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think that it's um, perfect for cuff tear. And the reason is that pain could also cause them to be weak in that situation. And right. so I think that maps to cuff disease but does, but not so much to full thickness cup tear. Okay. That makes sense. You, you mentioned before we leave impingement, you mentioned that you, you were testing strength of the rotator cuff muscles as well. How are you doing that? Is that, can you give an example of how you might do that in addition to the other special tests you just told us about? Oh, um, I would actually just do it the same way that you would when you were assessing for full thickness cuff tear. So like my standard approach uh, to a person, uh, maybe I'll just, you know, my standard approach to someone with intact active range of motion would be to proceed along and do um, the strength testing and then the impingement testing. Mm -hmm. So the strength testing being external rotation, internal rotation, uh, and MTKN or Job's testing. Okay. And the external internal rotation, that those are the lag tests that you had just told mm -hmm. us about. Got it. Yeah. So it, I would either do the lag test or I might um, 
uh, as we talked about, you can also test strength in those positions. And so if I'm thinking, you know, this person, the likelihood of cuff tear is really low and they have five out of five strength pushing against me. Um, I won't, I won't try a lag test, Mm -hmm. but if they're like sort of weak or painful, I might try a lag test. Okay. Got it. And could you talk a little more about that idea of impingement and bursitis being the same thing or possibly not? Yeah, this is, um, I, I, it's funny, you know, the more sports medicine doctors I talk to, the more controversy seems to be, (laughs) seems to be clear around impingement and bursitis. Is it the same or not? Um, the idea with impingement, well, first of all, so the pathology. So again, back to the anatomy, I think thinking about where the pathology is, is important. So we're thinking about the space between, if you start at the glenohumeral joint and, and you go out the layers that you have to go through to like get out of the body would be you're at the joint. Then you have to go through the capsule of the joint. Then you have to go through the rotator cuff. Then you're at the subacromial space. And then you're at like the AC joint, the collarbone, the acromion. So between um, the acromion and collarbone and the rotator cuff is the subacromial subdeltoid space. And that's a potential space that can become inflamed. And that's where bursitis lives. Bursitis being inflammation of the bursa there, that potential space. And so I think of it, um, so, so impingement syndrome means that that space is inflamed and we call it impingement because what the job of the rotator cuff, like, why do we have a rotator cuff? We have a rotator cuff because if we didn't have a rotator cuff, every time we reached overhead, our humeral head would crash into our acromion. So the job of the rotator cuff is to depress the humeral head and to keep it well seated in the glenoid, which is the, um, uh, the socket side of the shoulder. So the job of the rotator cuff is to keep the humeral heads well seated in the glenoid as you abduct, as you reach overhead. And when your rotator cuff doesn't work, your humeral head rises as you abduct and it crashes into the acromion and you get impingement. And so that's the that's the pathology that happens. And so you can have um, different uh, saying someone has bursitis or impingement is, is a little bit like saying someone has back pain. There's different reasons, sort of more like a it's more of a symptom than it is a true, um, uh, you know, describing true pathophysiology, because there are like lots of things that could cause impingements. So you can have rotator cuff tendonitis, where the, the cuff just isn't firing properly. And so you still, when you reach overhead, the cuff just isn't working and you impinge, or you can have a full thickness cuff tear where the cuff can't work properly because it's, um, there's a discontinuity. And so when you reach overhead, you impinge. So there's different things. You can even have, um, dysfunction of your shoulder blade and that changes the angulation of the shoulder socket, the glenoid, and that can cause impingement. So the causes of impingement are a few. Clinically, though, you know, you can pick it up with these kind of uh, maneuvers. How are we going to get through the rest of the shoulder? So you, because you you gave us how we identify impingement and the tests to do there. And then the other 
three sort of categories you gave us were tendonitis, partial tear, and full tear. And mm-hmm. I guess we sort of went through full tear with the, the lag test that we had talked about. Mm-hmm. So how would you kind of settle in on this is tendonitis or this is a partial tear? Are there any other tests that we haven't talked about that might point us in that into those directions? You know, I think um, the people say that if you have pain with activating the muscles, you could call it tendonitis. I do not think that there's strong evidence for that. I think, um, you know, and I think distinguishing those things also is arguably not so important from a primary care standpoint because the treatment is the same. I see. Okay. So maybe... Maybe at this point, then, if there's no other tests that we need to talk about, I mean, it sounds like the real important one, we just need to figure out if there's a full thickness tear. If we don't think there's a full thickness tear, then we're going to be trying some treatments. And maybe you can talk to us about how you counsel patients about when, let's say, someone comes in and they have an impingement syndrome and you you don't think there's a full thickness tear, what might you tell them? And what sort of therapies might you try initially? Yeah, so if someone has um, an impingement syndrome, I'm not worried they need to see a surgeon. The first thing I would do is talk to them about how much pain they're having in that during that time. So, and what have they tried? So that's where I sort of use that question about are they waking up from sleep with pain? Because if someone is has you know really bad impingement syndrome and they're not sleeping, that's a person who would really benefit from a steroid injection. If they haven't tried a course of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, that too is a very good option and definitely lower risk than putting a needle in their shoulder. So I will do one or the other depending on what they've tried. Um, And then the next step um, is I encourage people to go to physical therapy. There is some data that you could do either. So um, I used to think, you know, because of the pathophysiology of impingement syndrome with, you know, the humeral head, Um, not being properly depressed by the rotator cuff, you would think, well, that has to be fixed with physical therapy for these people to get better, right? That's what I used to think. But then there was a study out of the VA showing that you could do either. You could give physical therapy or you could give injections. And basically, everyone got at least 50% better over the course of a year. So I think you can really work with your patient and identify what their goals are. If this is someone who um, desires physical therapy, then I would encourage that. If this is someone who prefers to have an injection and not do physical therapy, then that's also okay. And in both cases, I think it's important to see them back. So I like to see these patients back in six to eight weeks to make sure that they're improving. And the reason to do that is that you know, we have these physical exam maneuvers, but people can fake you out because you can recruit other muscles to pass these exam tests. And so I, you know, I have had patients where I don't think they have a full thickness cuff tear. I'll either do an injection or send them to physical therapy and see them back at six to eight weeks. And if they're not improving, that's when I consider uh, getting an MRI to look for a full thickness cuff tear. I think from a primary care standpoint, that's when I would consider a referral. I want to just ask about the the injections. Is the is the evidence base for injections? I mean, in a lot of other a lot of other joints, when you look at injections, uh, whether it's the spine or the knees, 
it seems to be the evidence isn't as strong as these are done so frequently that you'd that you'd expect the evidence is really strong, but then when you actually look at it, the evidence is not as strong. Does shoulder fall into that kind of same category? So what we know about shoulder injections is that, um, I should say what we know about steroid in general, of course, is that it's not great for tissue. So we know that about the knee, that it's harmful for cartilage in the shoulder. There's evidence, but it's really not good evidence. Uh, the studies are, um, now many years old and by today's standards, not very well done showing that people with more injections are more likely to have failure when they have their rotator cuff tendon repaired. But those were retrospective studies, again, not with the kind of design that you would wish that they had. So we still do, though, rely on that data and sort of say, you know, we don't think you should continue to put injections into the shoulder joint uh, or into the subacromial space because it will weaken the integrity of the tendon and muscles there. Um, but in the case of a need for short-term pain relief, putting an injection into the subacromial space for impingement can be extremely helpful. Um, and in the case of calcific tendonitis can be curative because the injection can actually make the calcium in some cases go away. So, you know, depending on the indication, it can be very helpful, but I think overall the trend is to be doing fewer steroid injections in general. And any topical therapies that you found helpful for the shoulder? We talked about this recently on episode about gout. We were talking about topical NSAIDs. Do you find that helpful for your patient population or for any patient population? You know, I don't know that there's any evidence on uh, topical NSAIDs for shoulder pathology. I think the evidence is strongest for knee and hand OA. And in those cases, I find it great if you can get it covered by insurance. The uh, one joint that I would consider using it in, because it seems like not too much of an abstract abstraction, would be the acromioclavicular joint. And, you know, the AC joint is, is so superficial that it just seems likely that diclofenac could help. And so I offer it to patients for that indication. And the way I pick those patients up is just to palpate across every patient I have. I, we talked about hip rot, so we do inspection and then palpation. And I really, in the shoulder, palpate only two areas. I palpate the AC joint, which you can find um, by just starting by marching your fingers across your clavicle. And if you feel at the distal end of your clavicle, there's like a little divot, that's your AC joint. And it might be tender if you have a little arthritis there. So looking for AC joint arthritis, it's really important to palpate that on all of your patients, especially our middle-aged and older patients, because it is an extremely common radiographic finding, often asymptomatic. And what, what it gets confusing as a clinician is if you haven't palpated, then you get the x-ray and you're like, ooh, I don't, maybe it was AC joint OA, but I didn't really palpate it. Um, and AC joint OA can be, a, it's like other things, other disease. It's like a great mimicker. So many physical exam findings can be positive because of AC joint OA. So those impingement maneuvers we talked about, range of motion can be painful. So it's very, very helpful in all of your patients to just palpate the AC joint. Um, and then the second item that I always palpate is the biceps tendon. So this is the tendon of the long head of the biceps. You remember that your biceps 
originates in two areas and the long head of the biceps tendon originates in the glenohumeral joint and then pops out and travels down the anterior part of the arm as the biceps. So the biceps tendon, it takes this really sharp turn and dives down deep into the joint and people get tendonitis there commonly. So the way to palpate that is to, I like to take my thumb and sort of push it into the part of the shoulder where the shoulder joins the chest wall. And you can kind of pluck your thumb across and you feel like a guitar string like plucking. And that's the biceps tendon. <laughs> um, and if you have trouble finding it, um, you can bend your elbow and internally and externally rotate your shoulder and you'll feel this ropey tendon pass beneath your thumb. And so I like to palpate that on all of my patients. And like, like all musculoskeletal exams, it's good to palpate the other side because like you know, it sometimes is painful just to poke your thumb into somebody. So make sure you palpate <laughs> both sides. Are there any provocative maneuvers that seem to be more sensitive for a chromioclavicular joint arthritis? Like, I think I vaguely remember like crossed arm adduction is maybe a little bit of a better indicator for that. Is there anything else that sort of, since it can make so many things, is there anything that seems to point you more in that direction? That's the one. It's cross body adduction. So if you bring your straight arm across your body, kind of like a nice stretch, uh, and that basically forces the joint together, the AC joint, and that'll bring out pain. And I, that's what I rely on. If, if the patient basically, I mean, that's a pretty easy, uh, Paul wears uh, a lot of scarves, so he has, he throws them across <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and yeah. that's, that's how I remember that one. I picture Paul yeah. putting a scarf on. <laughs> yeah. But if your patient, I mean, if your patient points to their AC joint, they're tender there and they have positive cross body adduction, that's like, great, you're done. I think we, we're going to need to let you go soon. So let's take <laughs> final questions and, and then maybe we can get some take-home points. I wanted to wrap back to if you do think it's a full thickness chair based on your exam, how urgent is it for um, that kind of patient to see a surgeon? That's a good question. I think it depends on the chronicity of the problem at hand. So the reason is that rotator cuff tendon tears, the longer they're there, the harder they are to fix. Because what happens to the rotator cuff is the longer it's torn, it starts to retract. So it starts to kind of move back towards the midline. And the surgeon then has to go find the tendon and bring it over and, and reattach it to the greater tuberosity of the humerus. So the more retracted it is, the more likely the repair is to fail. What also happens with time is that the rotator cuff muscle becomes atrophic. And then lastly, it gets infiltrated with fat. And people are trying to figure out, there's actually a lot of research being done by my colleagues around like, why is that happening? And what are the mechanisms behind that to try to figure out interventions? But what we do know is that the longer the tendon is torn, the harder it is to repair. And so for that reason, you know, when you identify a full thickness rotator cuff tendon tear, I think it's good to put in the referral to the surgeon at that time. And, um, and the more the more acute, uh, the more likely the repair is to help. Paul, any final questions? No, I, I feel like we hit the high points. This was really helpful. Yeah, this has been great, Carlin. Any, uh, any uh, take-home points or wrap-up points you want to give to our listeners? Yeah, I think when you think about your shoulder exam, remember the importance of active and passive range of motion and um, really practice that in your patients and feel like you uh, feel confident in, in assessing that because 
um, that will help you triage things into, you know, really two big buckets. So one with reduced active and passive, you're thinking frozen shoulder versus glenohumeral joint arthritis, um, or if not, then sort of a bucket with everything else. And and then second take home point is if you're in that bucket with everything else, the main uh, goal is to identify patients with full thickness rotator cuff tendon tears and refer them. And everyone else can go to physical therapy and just follow them up carefully and make sure they're improving. And I don't know if I have a third take home point. <laughs> No, that's perfect. That's good. That is a phenomenal algorithm. I think will be way ahead of the curve. Yeah, dude. And and you're when you were saying that, it just made me think of one thing. Did we get like a a timeline? Like when you tell patients, I'm going to send you to therapy for um. We I know we got it for frozen shoulder, but for the rotator cuff stuff, how long do you wait with like physical therapy and conservative management before you think like? how many weeks or months before you send them to either MRI or to an orthopedic surgeon to get a further eval? Like, did I miss something here? I would give it, you know, six to eight weeks of physical therapy. Okay. And I do, you know, I tell my patients depending, I mean, depending on who they are, I might follow every single one up, but often I'll just say, you know, come back and see me if you're not improving. And I, and I let them know too. I mean, I'm very transparent and say, you know, this isn't improving. I think we need to go on and get further imaging so, so that they know why they would be coming back. And, you know, I guess maybe a third take home point would be, I think from it's, it can be very um, difficult to interpret a shoulder MRI because they're, you know, it'll be two pages of single space findings. Um, (laughs) This gets back to, you know, why I love sports medicine is that again, like the physical exam is where it's at. And no matter what the MRI says. So um, unless you feel really confident in interpreting shoulder MRIs, I would say I would just um, refer the patient maybe pre-MRI and get radiographs, but but send the patient with radiographs and um, let the sports medicine specialist decide, you know, do they need an MRI? If so, what kind? Because they might want a, an injection. That's great. I, I actually heard a specific sports medicine specialist uh, say that, that he prefers. <laughs> he preferred that, that people came without an MRI so he didn't have to repeat it with the specific views that he found helpful. So, all right. This is awesome. Thank you. Uh, maybe maybe we'll have to, to get you, bring you back. Maybe we'll have to tap you for another joint uh, exam oh, in the future. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 you can do it. Did Stuart send you that ahead of time? <laughs> uh, yep, Stuart. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> uh, I think we're just going to end on that. That was uh, a good one. Carlin, thank you so much. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you, guys. That was really fun. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Stuart? Yeah, thank you. There we <laughs> go. That's the stuff. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Uh, We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review this show on iTunes, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and goodbye.
good night. I always forgot to thank Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook, and Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram. And now, good night. And no pun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to stop recording here.